Well, dear friends, if you would take your copy of the Scripture and turn with me to Psalm 119. I've become something, uh, maybe infamous would be the word, picking obscure texts to preach on uh, different seasons in the life of the church, whether it be Christmas, Easter, New Year's. and Maybe this is one of them, uh, Psalm 119, probably not a place that most people would go at the beginning of the year, but I trust that it will be <clears throat> valuable to us. And I'm sure by now, as uh, we come to worship the Lord our God, that we've soundly shut the door on 2023. Now, we may not have grown accustomed to saying 2024, uh, to writing it. I I struggled to do that today. I don't know about you. But we're moving on, right? We're ready for a new year and hopefully setting some new patterns or perhaps having some old ones renewed. And yet for others, if we're honest, maybe the struggles or the intense sorrow of 2023 kind of sticks to us. Some of us find ourselves wanting new ways, but waffling in the pursuit of them. Now, I'm not accusing you this morning of already abandoning your New Year's resolution. That'll be next week, perhaps. But what I am saying is that many of us, due to the difficulty and darkness of this fallen world, we may be slow to shake off sorrow or the afflictions that seem to stick to us and set new patterns. In fact, we may not even know how to fight through the trouble and establish new ways. But that's a struggle that the psalmist here in Psalm 119 is facing. And this psalm isn't a a New Year's psalm, as it were, but it is a psalm about resolution, about the place, communion with God, knowing God through His Word, and the determination to follow Him should have in our lives. And really, that's what I want you to see. Uh, And if there's one resolution that we should all have this morning, it's that we would know the Lord better that we would know Him with greater diligence. And how do we come to know Him and to follow Him with more intense devotion? It's by giving attention to His Word. And that's what this psalm is about. Well, with that said, let me pray and then we'll read our passage. Heavenly Father, we come looking to You to open our eyes, looking to You to instruct us by the power of Your Spirit in Your truth and asking to be sanctified by that truth. Oh Lord, would You help us as we look to You? Would You enlighten our eyes? Would You rejoice our hearts in the truth and teach us Your way? For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Psalm 119, and we begin in verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to Your Word. When I told of my ways, You answered me. Teach me Your statutes. Make me understand the way of Your precepts, and I will meditate on Your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to Your Word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me Your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set Your rules before me. I cling to Your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of Your commandments when You enlarge 
my heart. Well, thus far, God's holy word, and may he be praised. Brethren, please be seated. <clears throat> Many of us perhaps are familiar enough with Psalm 119 to know a bit of trivia about it. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's heavily focused on the Word. Eight terms are used repeatedly in the psalm about God's Word. Psalm 119 is also an acrostic poem. Every verse of all 22 sections begins with the appropriate letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It takes incredible discipline to write an acrostic poem, but to write this one in this level of detail would be quite an undertaking. Here is deep devotion to the Scriptures. And yet in the midst of the praise to God for His Word and the psalmist's profession of the role of the Word in the life of the believer, the psalmist is conveying the struggles of his soul and the way to combat sorrow that could threaten to sink us. You see, the psalmist, like every believer in a broken world, battles with enemies. There are those on the outside who hate the truth and are hostile to us. And then there's the battle with our own sin, our failures to live up to what we know. The psalmist also battles the daily burden of life in a cursed world. Solomon puts in Ecclesiastes, life under the sun, right? Life in the midst of trouble and it inevitably carries sadness. Some days, lethargy seizes us. Other days, afflictions envelop us. And due to the constant tribulation, within and without, we could all wallow in despair. So what is the way out? How do we grope for light in the midst of darkness? How do we fight through the malaise to make our lives count, to know the Lord and live for Him? Well, the psalmist shows us, and ultimately, it's going to be the answer that seems to be the same answer to everything else. Prayer and the Word. Prayer and the Word. This section of Psalm 119 is filled with prayer. There are seven petitions those will not be my points, but there are seven of them. It's rooted in a commitment to God's Word. Ten times he talks about the Word of God. Also not my points. We won't have ten of them. But then he's going to wrap up with an overarching ex, uh, resolution. There, there are four resolutions, but one will wrap up the section. Well, what we're going to do is note four things as we make our way through the passage. And first I want you to see with me, prayers for life and strength in verses 25 and 28. Prayers for life and strength. Now, before we get to the prayers for life and strength, we first see the situation out of which those cries come. And the psalmist doesn't sugarcoat it. Verse 25, he says, My soul clings to the dust. That's quite a picture of humiliation, isn't it? of being thrown down to the ground and unable to rise. It's like the ground has a grip on you and you can't get up, you can't move forward, you can't shake off the dust. It's a telling picture of despair. You're stuck, you're paralyzed, everything is low. Believers feel like that sometimes. You're clinging to the dust and you can't lift up your head. 
But notice here, though there may well be physical components to how the psalmist feels, he's talking about the inner man. His soul is weighed down. It's as though he can't lift up his soul to God, which is languish in the Psalter of prayer. In other words, he feels like he's got iron in his heart. He's distant from God, lacking in communion, maybe turbulent, prayerless, deep in grief. And just to paint the picture further, the psalmist gives a second description of his struggle. Verse 28, my soul melts away or literally drips for sorrow. It's quite an imaginative picture because he's describing his soul as if it's leaking, like it's got a leaky roof. But in this case, the leak is the loss of strength within from grief. Now, we're not told here the source of his sorrow. In a sense, it doesn't matter. What the psalmist feels like is his soul is losing motivation. His soul is losing power. He's losing the ability to engage with God as he ought. Have you ever felt like that? And yet, here's the crucial thing. When the psalmist is in the depths, when he feels like he can't lift his head to pray, when his spiritual enemy is, uh, his spiritual energy is flowing out of him like a melting snowman, what does he do? He prays anyway. What do you do when you don't feel like praying? You pray. What do you do when you don't feel like you're close to God, like you're far away from Him? You draw near, you pray. James 4, draw near to me and I will draw near to you, the Word says. How do you handle a soul that's sad, that's slipping, we might say, into the darkness? You seek the light, you pray. Are you getting the message? Brethren, the psalmist is honest here. He, he doesn't pretend like everything is going well in his life, like life is easy and the daily fight is just like a walk in the park. It isn't. This is a real battle in the soul. And he tells God plainly of the rot within him, all the messy, ugly, complicated emotions. But then he doesn't stop there because this is not a pity party. He asks the Lord to intervene. Look at verse 25. My soul clings to the dust Give me life or cause me to revive according to your word. Now, there's a vital assumption here in the psalmist's prayer, and it's this. The word of God is life-giving. Where in the world would the psalmist come up with such an idea? How about the creation of the world? How did everything came into being? God spoke the word and life came. There's power in the Word to make what wasn't there be there, to create something out of nothing. God can bring light and life into a scene of darkness and death. He can nourish the languishing soul. How did He put it through Moses in Deuteronomy? Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. That was said in the midst of Israel experiencing a lack of bread, but what they really need is the Word of God. Because like nutrients from the bread sustain the body, the Word itself sustains or enlivens the soul. Or as David once put it in Psalm 19, verse 7, your Word is perfect, reviving the soul. 
Brethren, where trouble saps us, where calamity deflates us, the Word invigorates us. How? God's truth, by telling us of His steadfast love, His faithfulness, His attending presence, His power in our weakness, His nearness when trouble comes, that energizes the spiritually exhausted. He is the God who is there who is listening to us, who helps us, who loves us unceasingly. And He puts His everlasting arms underneath. He holds us by the hand. He opens our eyes. He gives us a place to hide like a shelter or refuge. And He sends His Spirit to brighten our eyes by reminding us of the truth. I'm just quoting Scripture. God is a God who lifts the downcast, heals the broken, binds the wounded, comforts the sorrowful, and picks up our head. These are the things the Word tells us about Him. The psalmist knows he's in darkness, but the dark is not dark to the Lord. And He is willing and able to help. So the psalmist is clinging to the truth and he cries out for mercy, Lord, give me life. Nourish me as You have promised. Shower me with the bread that sustains. And then he adds, verse 28, though he melts away with sorrow, he says, strengthen me or raise me, cause me to stand according to your word. And what a picture that is. The soul is laid low, but the word by grace, as it penetrates us, lifts us up. We can feel like a deflated balloon. Well, God's word is the helium filling the balloon to reshape us, we might say, and enable us to be useful. And how does the Word do this? Well, the Spirit of God fortifies us, strengthens us. It puts rebar in your soul, if I could put it that way. The Spirit of God gives us the truth. He enables us to believe the truth. He enables us to hold on to the truth. And then that truth steadies us in trouble. That's exactly what the psalmist needs. He wants steadiness, Life, vitality, spiritual energy when he's laid low. And how does he get that energy? It's not from monster drink. It's not from a little five-hour energy. We can't raise ourselves up. We cry to the God, rather, who raises the dead. We call out to Him to strengthen the weary and increase the power of the weak because that's the God He says He is. He will revive the spirit of the lowly so that we can put one foot in front of the other. Well, brethren, whatever your state is this morning, whatever you're struggling with as you come to worship, are you seeking Him like this? Whatever trouble, whatever you're resolving to do to commune with God, are you pleading for the power of God to help you? And why should you? Because the spiritual life can't be lived in the flesh. You need the Spirit of God to enable you to grow. And here's the beautiful thing. God gives the growth. God is willing to answer these kinds of prayers. The Lord is pleased to help us. And what's the proof that that's really true? He sent His Son to come here to rescue our guilty souls and revive us. And He raised the Lord Jesus, the conqueror of our enemies, to cleanse us of sin and to give life to our souls. This is the proof to us of His love. 
And that should motivate us even more than what the psalmist has to pray for life and strength. Pray through your present burdens. Pray through your disappointments because the Lord is your helper. That's how we have communion with God. But then secondly, see with me, not just prayers for life and strength. See prayers for direction. Prayers for direction. Verses 26, 27, and 29. The psalmist doesn't just want to be raised up and caused to stand. He wants to know the way to go. And that comes out several times in our section. First though, notice in verse 26 the nature of the prayer. The psalmist begins by acknowledging a crucial fact. The Lord hears and answers. The Lord isn't deaf to my distress. Look at how he puts it in verse 26. When I told of my ways, when I recounted in prayer everything going on with me, this is just an aside. God wants us to tell Him about our lives, our struggles, our hopes, our disappointments, our obstacles. There may be somebody in your life who's tired of hearing all that from you. It isn't the Lord. Psalm 62, verse 8, pour out your heart before Him. And when the psalmist did it, when he conveyed all that was happening to him, he notes, verse 26, you answered me. The psalmist has seen that prayer bears fruit. God listens to us. What an astounding truth that is. The Lord of glory hears the voice of a man, this frail creature of the dust. How amazing is that? We often can't get the powerful to pay attention to anything that we say. But the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God who needs nothing, He willingly bends down His ear to listen to us. And through the blood of Christ, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. And when the psalmist sees the kindness, the benevolence of the Father who listens, who loves, that motivates him to ask for instruction. Lord, teach me your statutes. Now the psalmist is assuming something about himself that gives fruit to this prayer. He looks at his life and he recognizes it doesn't measure up to what God says. There's a distance between my doings and what God declares. So Lord, instruct me or teach me. Make me ponder what you say. Cause me to see the goodness of your commandments. Give my heart discernment that I would recognize good and evil and therefore carry out the implications of your word. Now, brethren, we have to understand as we come to study the Bible today in the 21st century, we have more tools than any generation ever. We've got study Bibles. We've got a vast array of commentaries. We've got maps. We've got social background books. We've got language tools, if you should so choose to use them. But you can have all that and still be lacking one crucial thing, that the spirit of truth would be your teacher. We have to have the Lord Himself by the power of the Holy Spirit to instruct our hearts. How many people through the centuries, from those opposing Moses to the false prophets battling Elijah to the Pharisees in Jesus' day, how many heard the Word, read the Word, but didn't understand a lick of what the Word was saying? That, that doesn't, that, that's not how we want it to be with us, right? We don't want mere head knowledge we want the Lord to give us more than just information about His Word. We want Him to help us grasp it, make us know the Lord and do His Word. 
And then the psalmist further prays, verse 27, Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous words. Now again, his prayer assumes a lack of understanding. It assumes that we come and we look on God's precepts, His authoritative law-giving, and we don't get it. You ever felt like that when you read your Bible? I, I don't get it. Well, Scripture reveals, in fact, that's how it is with us by nature. We're hostile to the law of God. We're blind to the light of God's law, to its significance and its intent. God has to give the light to us. He must remove our rebellion. He must give us a humility, a ready spirit to be taught that we would submit to what He says. But of course, when we submit, when we see the goodness of His law, or perhaps the travesty of failing to obey His law, like watching the train wreck of Israel in the wilderness, when we see God's wisdom, His kindness, His good word, it causes us to want to know more of His ways. For instance, when we're made to understand the wonder of the God-man, that Adam failed and we fell in him, but God took care to bring a second Adam, the Lord Jesus. God Himself taking flesh that He might substitute for us His perfect life in our place, His atoning death to wash us and make us clean. When we see that, that way of God, we're overwhelmed. How could it be that the Lord of glory would take flesh and come to rescue this guilty soul? In a sight of that, a sight of God's authority, a sight of how He directs all things for His glory and our good, that causes us to want to pause and ponder all the great works of God. And when we consider His ways, we consider His power, His flawless government of the world, how He works good out of our messes. It makes us want to know Him more. That's the nature of the psalmist's prayer. When you, when you answer this prayer of instruction, I will meditate on your wondrous works. And yet, brethren, if we're to know God's ways, which are much higher than our ways, if we're to set our minds on the things above, we have to have God, verse 29, graciously teach me your law. Catch the note of grace there. Due to our sin, we ought to be left in the dark. The Lord would be entirely just to leave us with no instruction. In fact, if we think about it, He's given us all the instruction, and what do we often do with it? We ignore it. And we go our own way. We are foolish and insolent. But He, a God of grace, is willing yet to speak the gift of instruction to us. Psalm 25.8, I love this verse. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore He instructs sinners in the way. How good is God? He takes us a sinner and He teaches us. Do you want to be taught? Do you want to taste the grace of God in guidance, the very guidance of His Word? Do we crave discernment in a world of deception? Do we long for clarity about the way to go when life can be so full of complications? Well, the Lord is a willing and ready teacher. He is pleased to impart the truth to us, to deepen our knowledge of Him, to show us the beauty and the benefit of obedience as we seek His face. Dear friends, are we 
eager students of the Word of God, we humble ourselves and ask the Lord to guide us. Some of you might be afraid to pray that prayer because you think that somehow it isn't going to be answered for you. All you got to do is look back at the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and even Jesus himself. And you can see, the Lord hears the cry. Oh Lord, guide me. He comes to our aid. Why would we fail to seek Him when He's so ready to help us? We don't want the Word to be a dead letter to us. So let's pray for understanding. Pray for direction. But then third we see with me here. Prayers for preservation in verses 29 to 31. In the midst of the present battle against sorrow and the blindness he knows he has when it comes to understanding God's Word, the psalmist sees he has another problem. Falsehood. Now, that falsehood can arise from within because we have deceitful hearts, Jeremiah 17.9. It could also arise from without, the lying serpent of old or the seductress of the world who never keeps her promises. But whatever the source of the falsehood, the psalmist knows I need to be preserved from falsehood. So he prays, verse 29, put false ways far from me. Just how dangerous is falsehood? Well, just consider one episode, Genesis chapter 3. What was Satan's intent when he crafted corrupt words to deceive the woman? His intent was murder. Jesus says so in John 8, 44. He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. The devil deceives to destroy. Satan is not your friend. He is an enemy aiming to kill you and leave you in eternal misery. And that destructive aim is also found in the world, which is offering you false satisfaction, false doctrine, false ethics. And in every case, the falsehood leads to death. If you exchange the truth about God for the lie, and you worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, what's it going to become of you? Well, the wages of sin is death. Falsehood, therefore, is lethal. There are no white lies. There are no slight deceptions. There's no such thing as an innocent massaging of the truth. The way of falsehood is diametrically opposed to Him who is the truth. How can you walk in communion with God in whom there is no darkness at all if you abide in the darkness, if you stick with lies, well, you can't. However, and here's the really sad thing about our fallen nature. Brethren, we seem to drift toward deception. You see, sin, even in the Christian, sin is always looking for an entrance into your heart. Sin wants to weasel its way in, hoodwink us, deceive us, and entangle us in the deceit which will leave us far from God and flowing down the lazy river to death. 
Well, the psalmist is aware of the pull of falsehood, the, the tractor beam of deceitful ways in worship, doctrine, and ethics. And he's pleading with the God of grace by His power to keep him. Lord, <clears throat> don't let me slip. Don't allow me to be captivated by lies. Don't let me be like a fish that's enamored with the bait, carrying something that's going to pierce me rather than promoting my good. Drive the deception away. And of course, brethren, what means does God use to drive deception away from us? If you don't know the answer, we've got a real problem. It's His Word. His Word is truth. His Word is utterly reliable. His Word exposes falsehood. His Word shows us the emptiness of the world. And that's why the psalmist is praying that God would graciously teach him the law. Do we want the truth? Do we want clarity in moral chaos? Do we want the right way, the reliable way, the righteous path? Pray for preservation. Pray that falsehoods would be unveiled as you saturate your soul in the Scriptures. But then notice as the psalmist prays, which indicates a need for grace, he also strives to please the Lord. He doesn't just pray and do nothing. He prays and strives. And he makes three resolutions in verses 30 to 31. First, he says, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I am purposely rejecting the false way, which is fickle and godless, and I set my feet to do what is right. Do we have such a resolve to go the faithful way? And then second, verse 30, I have set your rules before me. If I'm to discern falsehood and understand God's way, then I have to put my eyes on the truth. I can't say falsehood is distasteful and never study the truth. I can't say God, God's Word is my life and then I pay little attention to what He says. Now the psalmist is saying, I put the Word before me. Surely this implies direct, daily, disciplined contact with Scripture. How are we going to be lifted out of the doldrums of our distress? How are we going to be steadied when lies are flying all around us? It will only be as we give our attention to Scripture. Well, brethren, are we giving Scripture our attention? It's so easy to say that we love the Word and fail to read the Word. That's embracing a lie in and of itself. That you just somehow know it. Well, the psalmist is saying, no, I don't. And he wrote some of it. I don't know it. That's why I need you to put falsehood far from me. You don't know it. You've got to get in it. And when you come and get in the Word, who do you meet there? You meet the living God. He makes Himself known to us in His Word and His rules paint the path on which we should walk. That is our protection. So are we concerned to be protected? Well, do we read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the Scriptures? Are we setting God's Word before our eyes? Do you see what's going on in the Psalms here in, in this section in particular? Do you see how He's intertwining prayer and the Word? We aren't just preserved by prayer. We aren't just preserved by the Word. We're preserved by prayer and the Word. 
And then the psalmist has a third resolution in this section, verse 31. I cling to your testimonies. Earlier, he said, at the start of the section, I cling to the dust. That was an honest assessment of his soul. He's spiritually depressed. What's the solution? I cling to your word. Lord, when I'm laid low by trouble, when I'm driven to the ground, I grip your word. I hang on your promise. I stand on your goodness. Because not one word of all of your good words ever fails. And that truth, brethren, pulls us off the deck. We will not be abandoned, forsaken, or forgotten. The psalmist is fighting through the trouble. And he's fighting by gripping the word. And as he grips the word, he adds a prayer. Verse 31, let me not be put to shame. Or I could say it like this. Lord, I'm hanging on to you. Don't disappoint me. Don't let me down. Preserve me. Keep me from succumbing to the forces of evil that are everywhere. Do we pray like this? What confidence do we have to pray like that? Well, it's because the Lord tells us what we are to Him. We are the apple of His eye. We are the bride, chosen and precious. He sings over us. He's quiet in His love. And He will not let His people be dashed. We'll never be put to shame. Satan's accusing voice will be silenced. We will be vindicated ultimately from all evil, this attacking world. The Lord isn't going to kick you to the curb if you seek Him. He sent His Son to save you. He holds us that we shall not fall. So look at the kindness of God and pray for His preserving power. And then we come just to a final resolution. See, lastly with me, our fourth point, the pursuit of obedience. And look at verse 32. The Lord through the psalmist says this. And again, note the resolution. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. How different is this scene from the beginning? At the start, if you try to picture it, the psalmist was clinging to the dust. It seems to be like he's on the ground, and if you're on the ground, you're going nowhere. He wasn't running. He wasn't even walking. He, He was stuck. But the Lord has begun that reviving work in his soul. And strength is now flowing into the struggling man as he attends to the Word. And the strength has now motivated the psalmist not only to get up, not only to start walking, but to run. And as he runs, he has a particular path. He's steering clear of falsehood. And by grace, he's purposing to stay on the trail of obedience, keeping God's commandments. Because when he sees what the Word does, enlivens, strengthens, teaches, guards, preserves, keeps me away from shame. That just quickens my step. How could we neglect the Word if it does so much for us? We neglect it to our peril. The Word is the means for our growth, our stability, our peace. The Word is our life. But then notice in that last verse the relationship between the two phrases The psalmist is resolved to pursue obedience. He's going to run. I will run in the path or the way of your commandments. That's his intention. But how does that happen? What is the ultimate cause of this obedient pursuit? It's the work of God in his heart. Look again at verse 32. I will run in the way of your commandments when, or could be translated, and this would be my perspective, 
because you enlarge or you broaden my heart. If you note the footnote in the ESV, if you're paying close attention, it gives this picture, which I think is helpful, that the Lord sets the heart free. I will run in the way of your commandments for you have set my heart free. You've removed the obstacles. You've crushed those confining matters of sorrow and assault. You've enabled by your grace me to overcome. So we might put it like this. Tasting the goodness of God like the Grinch. Suddenly, a small heart is swelling by grace. And with a heart growing in size, our capacity to love God, to commune with God, to walk with God, it abounds. So the logic here is this. We have a responsibility to seek God, to pursue obedience, but we can't do anything pleasing to Him without His enabling grace. But here's the beautiful thing, dear friends. He gives more grace. He is willing to give strength from above, willing to pour out His love upon us and help us make progress. And He's willing not just to start a good work in you, Philippians 1.6, but to carry that work to completion. He's willing to take you from grace to glory. So if you're here this morning and you're sensible of your shortcomings, if you're here filled with sorrow, you've got a languishing soul, what should you do? Run to the throne of grace. Run to the God who delights to give good gifts. And look to His Word where He tells us how willing He is to hear and to help. And surely, brethren, when we see His listening ear, His abounding grace, His fatherly love, that should make us want to live for Him all the more. May a sight of His mercy compel us this year to pursue His commands. Indeed, in this new year, may we be a people who are prayerful and Scripture-filled because the love for Christ to our heart, from our heart, is just abounding. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that You would swell our hearts with affection to You. And we pray that in the midst of all of our troubles, that You would meet with us and lift us out of the dust. We pray that You would help us to hang on to Your Word. And we ask, O Lord, that You would instruct us in the way that we should go, that we would be preserved from falsehood, preserved from those who would seek to put us to shame. Lord, help us to see there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So may we cling to Christ and rejoice in Christ and speak the Word of Christ to one another, that we would run this race together and have none of us come up short. For we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.